So contextually, <clears throat> where are we right here? So we're in uh, Acts 15. We're going to pick it up there, verse 30. So somebody paint the contextual picture. Well, they had just finished with the, basically Paul and Barnabas had returned to Jerusalem to confer with the, the disciples and the elders of the Jewish Jerusalem church to get a better understanding of how to help the Gentiles with their belief because the Judaizers were coming in and basically <coughs> trying to enforce the old Jewish laws and the circumcisions and Paul's like mm, this isn't right and James had just finished speaking and basically stating no we don't need to add that burden and they basically wrote a letter and a group of men from the Jerusalem church along with Paul and Barnabas were heading up that way to give them the letter stating you don't have to do all this stuff just the basics stay away from sexual immorality don't get uh, food from the idol worship market and stay away from blood. And, and, and that one was not from the law standpoint, but from what perspective? Which one? Which one? The, the one about what, the... To, what to eat. That wasn't a warning prohibitive of eating certain things, but it was a warning to not be a uh, not to be a stumbling block. Yeah. They should be aware contextually of the people around them. And you know, sometimes that's where God's given us a freedom. You know, and, and we've talked about that last week, you know, that we get to eat bacon. You know, but yet if we have, you know, Jewish people come visit us, you know, it'd probably be nice not to, you know, throw a big you know, bunch of bacon up there on the on the table type of thing, just out of consideration for them. All right, so basically, great. don't smoke a whole hog in the. Yeah, we're not, we're not going <laughs> to yeah, yeah, smoke a whole hog or anything like that. Okay, so we're going to pick up there at 30. So, someone go ahead and read that whole paragraph there from 30 to 35. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they had rejoiced because of its encouragement. <coughs> And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time there, they sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. How does it seem like the uh, reception was for the letter? Well received. Well received. It does seem like that. All right, and so now let's just go back and look at the, uh, the, the nitty-gritty there. And so uh, somebody go ahead and read us 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. Okay, so reading through that from a contextual standpoint, right? we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago when they went up to Jerusalem. What's the picture when they go down to Antioch? Because we talked about how you know some people in the South, 
it doesn't matter wherever you go. Okay? Oh, you're talking about the geographical. Yes. Because, yes, Antioch is north, but it's lower elevations. So. Yes. And so, so technically from Jerusalem to Antioch, they're traveling north, but yet Jerusalem is at a higher elevation, and so that's why they're saying they went down to Antioch. And that's where you often have, they went up to Jerusalem. Right? So that's just a, a little contextual just to help you have a little bit of a picture because you know Jerusalem was along the ridge line, the mountain line that goes down through central um, Israel uh, versus the, the Mediterranean plateau uh, <coughs> coastal plain there and then the Jordan Valley on the other side of it. Well, flip-flop for you guys looking at me on that part there. Okay? Uh, and so, which Antioch was this? Syria. Okay, so, so this is the Syria Antioch, all right? It's just a little bit north. It's not the Antioch that is in Turkey that they stopped at when they did the first missionary journey. So again, we just want to always make sure we're getting little contextual clues uh, going with us there, okay? Um, so interestingly, what did they do once they got there? They gathered the congregation. And so notice this is a family communication. You know, it's not just something just for the leaders. You know, it's something for everybody. And so they're like, okay, everybody in the church, come on. You know, we got to get this letter. Okay. And so that's where, you know, we just have to see again and again. Once we're a believer, it's all about being part of a local body, a local church being with each other, and you're interacting with each other in that. All right, somebody go ahead and give us a, a read on 31. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of, the, of its encouragement. Okay. So this is one of those situations that they kind of told us uh, the main points that were in the letter, but I don't feel like we, we got the whole letter. All right, because with what we read last week, I don't know that that's like high on the encouragement list. I mean, it wasn't chastising them, you know, it was, it was teaching them some good things. And so they're probably like, you know, yeah, okay, thank you, appreciate that. But there must have been some other in there uh, that we just didn't get. Uh, and that's okay. You know, we know that all throughout the, Old or the New Testament, you know, Jesus did a lot of things that we don't have any evidence of or any writings of. We know Paul, you know, wrote letters all the time, and so we only have a handful of those, even though he wrote the majority of the New Testament number of books-wise on that part there. And that's where it's okay for us to ponder those things. Now, we can't build theology off of that or, you know, substantiate anything by that, but yet I think it's okay for us to think through as we're reading a dialogue or a narrative here and be able to talk through these things and kind of paint out the rest of the picture just a little bit uh, to have a little bit more of a full picture on that. Someone? Oh, okay. I've got a comment on that, though. Oh, go. You know, we didn't, we didn't talk too much about the letter, I don't think, last week. We talked about it some, but, you know, in the study that we've, we, we have here, you know, they open up, James opens up this letter with, you know, greetings, but then that's where he starts, you know, uh, saying, hey, um, you know, we've heard that some of you went out, some of you troubled, you know, there's those that have been around that have troubled you, you know, and he's, uh, and we didn't endorse that, 
out of Jerusalem, and he states that in the letter, you know. So he kind of lays down the hammer in the opening. On the other people. On the other people. And, you know, those folks were the ones that were in Antioch, and they were all divided at that. Not all divided, but, you know, there's a big question. And, and so right off the bat, James opens up and says, you know, we didn't, we didn't endorse any of this uh, salvation with uh, circumcision being a requirement. And um, so I think they, you know, that's where he opened up. And then he also had uh, Silas and um, uh, what, Judas? Judas. Yeah, from Jerusalem, which were underscoring, you know, Paul and Barnabas had been there in Antioch and they left off, but now they're bringing back really some reinforcements that really underscore the, the validity of the Jerusalem church. So, you know, just to eliminate any question of, um, you know, any kind of a wishy-washy letter that, mm-hmm. you know. That you know, isn't the so. next verse, but, you know, over <laughs> you're getting us ahead. Now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. There's always one. <laughs> or two. So thinking through, um, when you're encouraged, why? What's happening when you feel encouraged? Gives you a warm fuzzy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh. And the fact that, uh, one, someone noticed that you're doing yeah. something correctly. Okay. Or somebody believes in you. And, and to you keep start. and to keep going on with okay. what you're doing. All right. Somebody else. What's going on when you feel encouragement? Your faith is affirmed. Makes me want to keep going. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So let's flip it. Okay. Why don't we encourage people more? I'm not saying you don't at all, okay? But since it makes us feel good when we get encouragement, why don't we encourage others more? Are you talking in the church or outside or both? I'll just, I'll just say just being an encouragement to anybody within your sphere of influence. Like family. Yeah. I think there's many reasons. I think fear. Fear of what? I don't know. Fear of what they'll say back. We okay. To encourage them. I think that there's... Um, they might take it wrong. Yeah. We're so trying to encourage them, but they might not hear it right. Right. Okay. Selfishness. Okay. We don't because we're selfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Over well, people. What's that? Overly critical. Ooh, yeah. Sometimes we can do that to where, you know, it's hard for us to really see something to encourage somebody with because we're too busy, you know, picking out the uh, specs in their eyes. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, inside our, be encouraged inside our sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Well, true, we may be afraid of how they will receive it, but we're not to worry about that. We're to do God's work. Plant to see and let God handle it the way he wants to. Yeah, and I don't disagree with that. Uh, that's why I just wanted to talk through why we don't, so then we can keep them in front of us and understand that and then get over that. So why, oh, why else don't we encourage as much or more as we could? I so, think, go ahead. That sounds bad, but you could encourage somebody, but later on, if you've done it in the past, it goes to their head and maybe you don't want to do okay. it again because... They're one of those. You're, you're fearful of it. They might take it wrongly and get a big head and can't fit through the door. 
Well, yeah, there are. There's a bunch of them. <laughs> Sometimes that does happen. Yeah. Or perhaps jealousy. I was just going to say that. Yeah. For me, you know, I, being an encourager is not always in the forefront of my mind. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm not as others-minded as I should be. So they could use encouragement, but I'm I'm trying to figure this problem out over here, you know, leaky faucet or something, whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm just not focused. And that's, that's one of the things that Jack and I were talking about today was, or, or Tuesday, uh, no, we did talk about it today also, <clears throat> but is how, how God has built us, how God has wired us, and what are our strengths and our weaknesses. With the understanding we're the body of Christ, so some of us are elbows or toes or knees or ears or noses or eyeballs. And so it's not that any part is more important or less important. So it's not that our strengths and weaknesses make us any more valuable or less valuable than anybody else. But we do need to understand our wiring or our, our DNA giftedness so that we can see where we're strong and then where our weak areas are, because I'm like Lynn, you know, uh, you know, having empathy and, and, and coming alongside and encouraging people isn't always, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm much more a task-oriented person. You know, I, I want to get the task done, and, uh, oh, if I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry, by the way, but i got to get the task done. And so that's where I just have to be much more intentional about trying to look for ways to encourage people. And some weeks, some days I do better because I'm more surrendered to Christ. Then some weeks, Mike's more, you know, taking in charge and gotta get the task done. Somebody, uh, sometimes it helps when you start to see that they're leaning that way. In other words, I had a um, salesman come into the house a couple weeks ago and he starts talking and right away they start using it colorful language. And uh, then we started talking a little bit more about his mother-in-law and, and anyway, she's supposed to be real sweet. And I was talking about our church and you know the different kind of people that we have in there. And, and then right away his language changed. And he got real pious. <laughs> so I was able to share a lot of scripture with him and the, I ended up with Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And so when we were finished, he wanted me to start sending him pictures of the books I've been reading. And uh, like uh, Leslie was talking, to him, I do a lot of John MacArthur stuff. My wife and I listen to it every day. And so I mentioned that, but I also mentioned some of the books he's written and stuff like that. And so I was encouraging him and I could see the turn and he was seeking more info. <coughs> So I, I hope it touched. He's coming back. We're going to finish up on what he was doing. And I'll, I'll, I'll show him the books that I have. I have a whole library. Well, Lynn, since you took us there, why don't you go ahead and read 32 for us. 32. Now Judas and Silas themselves being prophets also exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. Okay. So what was the point that Lynn brought out? Why do you think... Luke pointed this out. Because Paul and Barnabas had already been there. And they were back, but then they brought reinforcements. And the reinforcements were saying the same thing that Paul and Barnabas had said and expounding on that. And if we think through, 
It was actually the church that sent Paul and Barnabas down there because they saw some stuff that was going on and they thought it was wrong and they wanted the council there, the Jerusalem council, to reinforce and then send that decree back out. And so to be able to have somebody that came from the Jerusalem church, you know, that meant a lot, I think, versus if just Paul and Barnabas would have brought the letter back. Right. Application for us in that? So within churchdom, what would be a similar picture to this? Who do people expect to hear from? The pastor. Pastor. Staff. Who would it be nice to hear from? Us. Your fellow man. You know, it's a slightly different context, but I think it's similar enough there to think through, you know, People expect to hear from us from time to time on different things. But yet, if they would hear from the church family, I think that would be an even greater encouragement within that. So I just think that's a little challenging application for each of us to think through on that. And I'm not saying that you're not doing that, but in a room you know, with this many people, I don't think everybody you know, is communicating to the max level that you could on that part there. <clears throat> so, uh, how are they described? Prophets. Okay. So, when we have the word prophet here, and it's describing Judas and Silas, okay, what does that mean? Teachers, preachers of the word. Okay. Someone add in? prophet was someone who spoke with God's voice, or God gave them the words to say. Mm -hmm. You know, if we, if we think of that um, Ephesians 4.11 passage, where it talks about how God is equipping the <coughs> saints for their ministry, he gives the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now that passage is talking about small a, small p, small e, small s, Small uh, t. Well, I was going to let them all. <laughs> letters and my words are going there. Um, so here's where, to a certain extent, I'd be okay if you know that was a capital P per se for Judas and Silas. Uh, you know, but uh, it's okay. It doesn't need to be uh, on that part. But they had high stature uh, on that. And so when we think about apostle, the focus point of an apostle is somebody that's trying to expand the kingdom. Okay? You know, how can we multiply out and grow the kingdom of God? If you're a prophet wiring, then you're focused on getting that word from God, that truth from God to everybody <coughs> and they know that that's the truth. <coughs> and then you've got an evangelist and their focus is really about, okay, got to share the gospel. Got to share the gospel. Got to share the gospel. Got to get disciples made. Got to get disciples made. And shepherds are much more, you know, how you doing? You know, we got the tender going on there, checking in on people. And then the teacher is trying to give you every little detail 
you know, within, you know, they want you to know every Greek word and, you know, how 25 different passages relate to this one passage. And, you know, and they just, you know, they're like working. Oh, well, notice a little spelling off the end. You know, they're just, as vocational elders, as lay elders, as church members, I believe that we're all more strongly wired into one of those categories. And we need to press into that. And, and realize, you know, how God has gifted us, how He has wired us within that fivefold ministry, and then focus on using that in some way. And so, Scott, did uh, Church of Antioch did they know Judas and Silas as being prophets, or is this the first time they? I, I don't remember. I know Paul and Barnabas had been there before, right? Yeah. Oh yes. So was this a? Uh, I think. It would seem like this is the first time they've met him in person, but they've probably heard the stories and heard the, the names. So when, when they went down to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, was this a reinforcement to confirm everything or to strengthen it? Or do you think, it, I don't understand why they had all four of them at the same time. Well, so Judas and Silas, uh, were they, they were centered out of Jerusalem, just like James was, just like Peter was. Uh, they, they, they basically lived in Jerusalem or around Jerusalem, and then they did their itinerant ministry looping out and about. Versus Paul and Silas, or I mean Paul and Barnabas, they were actually stationed in Antioch there. And now God did send them on that first missionary journey. Right? And then when they got back, then that's when the Judaizers, while they were away, came in and they were saying, you know, okay, if you're a believer, that's great, but... You know, you need to make sure you're circumcised. And then that's when a bunch of the other leaders in the church went to Paul and Barnabas and were like, you know, you know that's wrong. And they're like, yeah, we know that's wrong. Uh, and they tried to talk the Judaizers down. And then they said, why don't you go down to Jerusalem, you know, and gather up the, the big group down there. And let's make sure that we got this approved and this statement stated. And so that's why they went down there. They talked through that. And then they came back. Uh, again, encouraged and strengthened uh, the brothers with many words. You know, it, speaking into people's lives is very powerful. Mm -hmm. All right, so somebody go ahead and give us a read on 33. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So just, you know, they went back about their business, probably went back down to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly on that. It uh, doesn't give us any clues here or anywhere else exactly where they went. Uh, but then 35, somebody, sent, sent, oh. sent them back to those that had sent them. And, of course, it was the Jerusalem Council that sent them up there. So they probably went back to Jerusalem. Yeah. And, again, that's where, you know, we can theorize things like that. And I don't think we're wrong in doing that. You know, we're trying to fill in the pieces the best we can, uh, but that's where you just can't definitively say that. But it would make very much, that's, that makes the most logical sense. So somebody reads that 35. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So, one. Why did you get 34? What's that? Why is there no 34 there? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you said that. I, I forgot to make that mark there. Okay, in so this, in this quote, it actually says, "However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there." Yeah. So. Um, but it's not in some. For some of for some of you, you might have it in brackets. Mm -hmm. 
For some of you, you might have it. It's there, but there's a footnote. For some of you, you might not have it there, and there's a footnote. Okay? So, Jerry, what's the footnote in your Bible say? Footnote in my Bible said that verse 34 said, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. But what's the footnote say? It said that some manuscript interprets verse 34. So we talked about this last spring. I don't think we talked about this, this this fall. So those of you that were here in the spring, what what what's the, the challenge right here with verse 34? It's not in all the manuscripts. So say it again, Lynn? It's not in all the manuscripts. So it's not in all the manuscripts. So we have to go back to the oldest one. What what manuscripts is it in and what manuscripts isn't it in? King James. Is it King James? No. So here's where we have to be careful because uh, when we say manuscripts, what language are we talking about? Byzantine or language? Greek. Okay. So when we're talking New Testament manuscripts, we're talking about manuscripts written in Greek. Mm -hmm. Right? <clears throat> and so when we talk about King James, King James's English translation, so we have to we can't go there. Okay. All right. Now, you can make the statement that the translation of the King James has that, but ESV or CSV uh, or NASB has the footnote thing going on, but it's not because it's a King James issue. And so that's where we are making the distinction there. We can't elevate the King James in and of itself because that's not the issue. We got to go back further. So if we go back to the manuscripts, all right. So now, John, how many families of the Greek manuscripts do we have? Two, Byzantine and I don't know what the other one was. Okay. So so technically, there's four main Greek manuscript families. Okay, but only two of them matter. Okay. So you have the Byzantine and the Alexandrian. Okay. Okay. Those are the only two that really matter. You've got the Caesarean and the Westerns, but we have so many less of them. It's still, you know, comparatively versus some of the other, you know, we have a decent amount, but compared to the Alexandrian and the Byzantine, there's just, there's less of them. Okay. So when we think about the Alexandrian, what is the key point about the Alexandrian manuscripts? It's, it's the John, you got let her bring a little bit here. John's in the Tuesday night microgroup, and in the Tuesday night microgroup, we just talk over each other, and it's just gangbusters in there. And uh, and so he gets excited, you know, when he comes in here, and he treats it the same way. So I gotta be like, <laughs> you know, he, he's correct in doing it, but I, I want to give everybody a chance to speak into it. Okay, John, nobody wants to speak <laughs> to it. It's the oldest. Okay, so when we look at the Alexandrian manuscripts, they are dated to be the oldest. All right? So now, what's the big point with the Byzantine manuscripts? More of them. There's more of them. Greatly more of them. So, in logical thinking, we have, there are, there are autographed manuscripts. So when I say the autographed manuscripts, what am I talking about? Your author. Say it, Dave. 
The author? Specifically... The writer? In, yes. So, so when I say the autographed manuscript, I'm talking about the one that Peter actually wrote and signed himself, so to speak. Do we have those? Do we have any autograph manuscripts from the original human author of any of the New Testament books? No, we don't by far. Okay, so even the Alexandrian are copies of copies of copies. Is everybody tracking with me so far? Scott, you got to look there. You got questions? No, I understand you now. Okay. At first, I had a lot of questions. Okay, <laughs> all right. Well, that's, you know, always pop the questions a up. Clearer now, yeah. Yeah. Okay, <clears throat> so but when we compare the date to the Alexandrian manuscripts versus the Byzantine, the Alexandrian are much older, and so logic would say the manuscripts that are written closest to the autograph time would be more accurate because there would be less time for copyist errors to come into play. Okay, So, so that's, that's the logic that people are processing through. And so that's where <clears throat> the Byzantine, we have more of them, and the Texas Receptus that is what is credited for the King, uh, the King James Bible being written in 1611, technically, it was some other stuff written in there and another English translation, and it wasn't straight, uh, just so we know that part there. Um, but it was from a Byzantine manuscript, and so 34 is in there. And since most of us, you know, yeah, most of us, you know, except for a couple, uh, three, uh, grew up on the King James Bible. And so that's where it holds a pr more prestigious place. And when you get Bibles that are written newer, then we want to say, well, older is better. And so we go poo-poo on the ESV and CSB and you know, things like that. <laughs> so here's where you've got to honestly work through this. Does it make sense to you and click with you that an older manuscript that's closer to the autograph would be more accurate. And, and I would go with that 99% of the time myself. But there's a dynamic within the context of the Byzantine uh, manuscripts. And, and I'm in the minority, but the viewpoint that I see is when we have the Byzantine Empire, <clears throat> who was king was very much tied to the church. And every time you had a new king or emperor, they would give a lot of money to the church. And they would say, hey, we need new translations. We need updated. And so they would take the vellum, all right? Uh, they'd get some new vellum. Uh, and then they would sit down there and they would copy it out. And then they would take the old vellum that had the manuscripts on it and they would clean the ink off and then that's the next rotation for the next, whenever they're going to get rewritten. So that's why we have more, and that's why we don't have any that are old. Because they kept reusing the skins when they would rewrite this new generation of transcripts or translations in there. So I go along with the theory that even though it's newer, it was more tightly translated. And so that's where 
I'm not championing the King James Bible. I'm championing the Byzantine family of manuscripts. And so I think that it's better to be in there. It's more accurate to be in there. Now, when we look at verse 34, okay, if it's not in there in the original, are we missing anything or gaining anything? No. You know, when we look at that, you know, but it seemed good to Silas to remain there. We get a little contextual, little blip there, but it's not adding to anything within the New Testament theologically or biblical understanding or application. And it's not taking anything away if it's not there. When we talk about these differences, now when we're reading the passage and it's a whole verse right there, boom, it's like, whoa. But when we look at the whole New Testament, 99.9% .9 of the Alexandrian and the Byzantine manuscripts are identical. And so we're only talking about a 100th percent difference and they're all things like this. Doesn't add anything in, doesn't take anything away. It's all repeated information or frivolous information. Now the largest portion is the, the ending to Mark 16. Okay? And if it's the ending of Mark 16 and it's not there, then what don't we have? As you know, every gospel has one in the book of Acts. Was it commission? Say it, Miss Meredith. The Great Commission. Yeah. yeah. Great you know, when we look at you know all four gospels in the book of Acts, we have some kind of Great Commission statement mm -hmm. or command mm -hmm. in each of them. Mm -hmm. Now, the Matthew 28 one is the most exhaustive, and it, it includes the most, so we normally go to it when we cite the Great Commission, but yet Mark has one. Okay, so, so if you cut off the last half of chapter 16 in Mark, then you don't have the Great Commission statement there. And so to me, I think that every gospel would have quoted Jesus around the Great Commission statement, and so to me that gives me more reinforcement that the Byzantine manuscripts are the more accurate translation. But, having said that, we have three other uh, Gospels that have a Great Commission, and we have the Book of Acts that has a Great Commission statement. So even if it wasn't there, we're still not missing anything in that. But that's just, it makes more sense to me and more logic to me. And so that's why I'm a Byzantine family manuscript guy, and so that's where, even though I read the ESV, I'm going to read that into it, being there. For those of you that are like, oh yeah, I remember that now. Sorry. You know, that was for the new people before in here. But well, if you look at that right there, the inserting of that Silas did stay behind, in a way, goes a little further than the verses before that because you would be left with the idea that both of them went back. Mm -hmm. Okay, I mean, when you read the verses, now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets, also exhorting the strength of the brethren with many words. 
and after they, you just talked about two people. I know it could have been the whole prophets, but you just specifically mean they stayed there for a time. They were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. And then the next verse says, well, no, one of them did stay behind. I'm not saying that there's not a difference. I mean, I can see the reason why it's in there. Yeah. But that's where, I'm not saying that there's not a difference. I'm saying that it doesn't make a theological right. difference. Right. It doesn't make a gospel difference. And so that's why we can talk about this as believers and have a little banter back and forth, but this is really a minor issue. You know, we have to come to that understanding. We don't need to argue this and lose our witness and our testimony with people. You just have confidence in what you believe and move forward and let the Holy Spirit work on the other people. You know, that's what I do. I don't try to argue people into the Byzantine. You know, I just have confidence that I'm right, and so then I just move on. Neil? Do you, do you, do you think that maybe by Silas abiding there, and he was pleased about that, that he was the overseer of what was going on by staying there? That's where I'm not going to get deep into talking about that since I don't know for sure. I would say technically no, because Paul and Barnabas are really the senior elders there. So he'd be kind of like a guest preacher. Like it was great that he and Silas came, or that Silas and Judas came up there, and, and kudos to them. But yet, it's kind of like if we had you know a preacher come in and preach here, Pastor Sean is still our pastor. And so Paul and Barnabas are still going to be ruling the roost, so to speak. And, and I, I'm just I'm just taking it that that all all the other the prophets and all, whoever else was there let, let that uh, Silas was the one that stayed there, yeah. and so he was the only one right there. Well, Paul and Barnabas were still there. Barnabas was still there. Yeah, and, and then the others, you know, because as we look at this, you know, verse thirty-five, and Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And if we remember back, when it's saying with many others also, what was the one big topic area, you know, a month ago that we didn't get very far because I, like, really pushed the topic a lot? Witnesses. It wasn't witnesses. Close. There were many, there were multiple what in Antioch? Elders. So it doesn't use that term here, but I think that's what Luke is pointing out, that it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas that were considered elders of the church at Antioch. They also had other men that were also elders. You know, Because we talked through the passage about having a multiplicity of elders. That, yeah, for the last <clears throat> 100 plus years within Baptist history, we've typically seen a single elder model with just one senior pastor. But yet, from New Testament times, it seems like the idea was that there were multiple elders in every church that would teach the word. You know, because that's the main distinction of an elder 
versus a deacon versus lay people, right? Is that if you're going to be an elder, you've got to be able to teach the word. And that's why, you know, we focus very hard on making sure that elders can teach the word. And that's been something that, you know, when you think through pastor um, bringing this to the church family, you know, so we've only been having a multiplicity of elders uh, for about three and a half years at this point. Uh, but he didn't, he didn't pop that right on us. You know, he walked us through that over time until the church also saw that New Testament truth. And then now we've had different groupings on the elder council. There was the transition group, and then there was the first group selected, and then now we're having some newer people come on. And I'll tease out, if you read the newsletter email tomorrow, um, you're going to have introduced to the next uh, potential elder on the council. So that's just a teaser, so you read the actual newsletter. Oh, Clyde, or Gene. Sorry, Clyde, Gene. Um, one of the reasons that I believe that this is an insertion, a later insertion from the earliest manuscripts. You get into the next pericope, Paul and Barnabas are going to have a disagreement. Paul's scriptures, Luke's going to tell us that Paul goes with Silas. It says Paul and Silas departed. So I think one of the translators, or one of the copyists, decided that how did Silas get there if he left? Right. So they decided we need to just throw that in there. And, and that, that would be the, the, the working theory for most people mm -hmm. that said that the older, more accurate manuscript had that he did leave with Judas and everybody else. Mm -hmm. right? So then he must have actually come back. Paul might have sent word to him. Because we've got to remember, you know, between Antioch and Jerusalem, you know, we're only talking about you know, a day or two or three, depending on how fast you're going to move traveling. And so once we get into the argument here uh, in the next few moments, he could have sent word down and said, you know, Silas, I need you to come with me. You know, and so, so from many people's perspective, it makes sense that a translator, a copyist person added that in. And, and, and that's where there is not definitive proof either way. Kyle. Kind of settling on what he said, uh, makes sense to me, not, not that it's a deal breaker, but the fact is since last week we were talking about the whole purpose for them coming out there because they'd heard for years the Mosaic Law mm -hmm. and how tough it was to keep the Mosaic Law talking about encouraging, they really needed some encouraging to go from that to something different, but it would make sense because the way it's worded in my Bible however it seemed good to Silas to remain there so there was a reason to me, not just along with what he said, but the fact of what they were delivering of, mm -hmm. hey, forget a lot of this other stuff. It comes down to uh, some basic things. Um, it might take some reinforcements to help help carry that through, mm -hmm. you know, at, at that point in time. Mm -hmm. you know. yeah. I also want to encourage, I think these types of discussions can discourage mm -hmm. people a little bit and, and make them wonder, how can I trust my New Testament? How do I know people didn't add stuff in there? How do I know people didn't take stuff out? You hear those questions a lot. Mm -hmm. We have so many manuscripts mm -hmm. that it defeats that argument. Mm -hmm. Unlike other religions and their history of copying and translations where they're deliberately destroyed so that we only have this one line of translations, we have so much evidence that we can pinpoint exact, pretty, with pretty certainty what the original authors wrote. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, 99.9% is identical across the Greek family. Yeah, so, I mean, so almost all of it in that. And then when we think through, what, what's the big historical book that gets all the, the press about being, you know, um, such a big deal because we have old copies of it and multiple copies of it? It's a, like a Greek mythology book. Aesop? What is it? Aesop? No, I don't think it's that one. If you said it, I could aim at it. But there's Iliad. a... What? The Iliad? The Iliad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, okay. this within within literature, you know, this is held up to be, you know, like the first true classic. And that, you know, there are, you know, I don't even want to know what to say, but there's like a handful of like old copies of it. Again, like a handful. But then we come into the Greek manuscripts and we're into the hundreds. And, and so that I just want to give those kind of numbers to back up what Gene was saying there. Uh, that, you know, that's where we have to admit, to keep a strong argument, there are copyist errors in the Bible. Okay, we, we do have to admit that because we have passages uh, that give different numbers. They give different spellings of names, but it's the same person or it's the same group of people. So, like, how many people did go down into Egypt? Anybody know the numbers? Like 700. No, no, no. No, way lower than that. 72 or 72. It's right in there. It's like you got like 66 versus 70 or 70 versus 76 or something. I forget. There's one, one passage gives you one and one passage gives you the other. I can't think which is off the top of my head. And so one of those has to be wrong. And so at some point when somebody was copying from the autograph, they, they, they missed that one. And we just have to admit that. But now when we're talking copyist errors, they're so minute, it's only like a number or a letter or something like that that's different. But that's where we can't be obstinate and say that there's zero copyist errors. Because then that's totally going to pull the rug out from our validity of our argument within that what we have is very much, the main, very much close to the autographs uh, on that. Because they, I mean, that we just got to give in to that, and that's why you can't have the argument that the authorized version is inspired by God and absolutely accurate. So when I say the authorized version, you know, that's the new terminology. Well, it's the old terminology, but that's the new terminology for people that are King James only. Okay, not that you are one of those or ever have been. Personally, I was uh, for a time period. The first time that I was taught uh, the difference in the Greek manuscript errors, I was given a brochure that was definitely from a King James only side of the argument, and it spelled out each of those passages and went through there, and, and I had my NIV uh, uh, Life Application Bible, and I'm just like, whoa, 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 you know, and everything, and so I had to go get me a King James, and uh, I got my nice lavender uh, King James Bible uh, that was the shelf model, and I got it on uh, clearance, and uh, Pastor loves when I pull that out, uh, because that's like the Bible that I would bring to Berean when I would preach 
back in the day uh, when Breen was King James only. And he just, it just rubbed him raw that I had this mauve colored uh, Bible. And he says it's pink. I'm like, no, it's mauve colored uh, on that. And he's like, why don't you get a different Bible? And I'm like, dude, I'm not spending the money to get another King James Bible. What are you talking about there? Uh, so, uh, but I was a King James only for a little while. So, I mean, I, I know where that comes from. Because it, 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 it's a, a comforting fact to think that what I have in English is perfect. The only problem with that is it's impossible for that to happen because those copyist errors are in there. And so you can't make an argument that what you have is perfect when you have two different numbers or you have two different spellings of, of names. Plus, the Apocrypha was in the 1611. What's the Apocrypha? The inner... Inter yeah. inter Say it, Leslie. Does it mean the hidden... The books in the Catholic Bible? Correct. Like Judith. The intertestamental. Yeah. yeah, the intertestamental books uh, that we have between uh, Malachi and Matthew. You know, they're in there, all right? And so, now, do we think that those are canon? No. no. Okay, no, we do not. But if you're a King James only person, then it's hard for you to argue against it being in the canon. If you say what we have in the King James Bible is perfect, and it's the only, you know, authorized version in English. Plus, if you want, I've got like a photocopy of a 1611. And, and I can lay it out. And we could lay it down beside your King James translation. And there's differences. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm going to ask you, so then which one is the perfect King James version in that? So... So I just want to, you know, I just want to make sure that we're we're smart Bible self feeders, and we stand firm on what we can stand firm on, and we don't stand firm on things that make us look silly. Now, am I saying that King James is a bad translation? No, not in any way. My challenge with it is it's Elizabethan English. Now that's not a challenge for me. Because when I was in that phase there, uh, my student teaching, you know, I'm reading the King James Bible. I mean, me and my campus pastor, we're like talking King James ease with each other uh, just because we're in it that much and, you know, just using it. Praying uh, type of things. Yeah, praying in it, you know, type of thing there. And, and so I didn't have any problem with it. But when you talk to other people, it's a different language in 2024. And so it's not that it's a bad translation. It's just the language, the these, the thous, and the those, the shouts and the shout nots, that's just hard to get over. And so even though you grew up in it, and so it might be yours, okay. But for new believers in 2022, I mean, you're, you're asking them to take a whole nother step, not only believing in God, but being able to learn a new language. On that, and so that's that's my pushback on it, and, and why I just don't think we can be dogmatic, and, and that's why I, I would often, you know, I would always reference ESV, uh, NASV, CSV, um, the the legacy that just came out two years ago, um, because the English is in there it is today's English uh, on that. Now that's where like even the NASV, it, it's not my higher. Per, uh, uh, favorable because 
it's very rigid, uh, and so it's sometimes a little harder to read because they kept the word order of the Greek sentences more than like the ESV or the CSV do. And so that's where the CSV and the ESV are much more readable, but I still think they're good word for word, but yet they put the subject first, the verb in the middle, and the object at the end. But sometimes in the NASB, they go with the Greek and it's in different places uh, on that. So, sorry, I went to the preaching on that part there. Okay, move along. Uh, but I definitely want to make sure that we talked about the multiplicity of elders again, uh, just because that's something that has been absent in the Baptist church for 100 years, but yet I think it's biblical. And that's where we can't let tradition hold us to something that is against where Scripture was. And even though you know pretty much everybody in this room grew up with one elder being a senior pastor and that was it, that doesn't mean that that is the closest to the Bible. And we just have to be willing to admit that. So, all right. So, well, no. We better just wait on that one. Okay. Closing thoughts. We'll pick it up at 36 uh, next week. But closing thoughts on anything tonight? One more word on copying. If you take the example of, let's say I, I handwrite a four-page letter, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to hand it off to Lynn and ask Lynn to copy it, mm-hmm. right? And I'm going to hand it off to Meredith and ask Meredith to copy it. I do that for everybody in here, mm-hmm. right? I've got 20, 30-something different copies. Everybody makes a mistake somewhere in that letter. Number one, you got to read my handwriting, right? Yeah. Number two, you're going to make a mistake somewhere. You're going to leave off a period. You're going to leave off, off a letter E, whatever it is. But... Some smart person or committee can take those 30 copies and come up with the exact original letter that I wrote. You, does that make sense? You, you see how that works? Yes. That's what we have. We've got thousands of manuscripts. That's why we can be so certain of what the original autographs were. And they come from different regions around the Mediterranean Sea. And so then that also gives us validity. Uh, they, they, they might have went down here, uh, but when we bring it back in, you know, Basically the same thing, you know, on that. Anybody else? Thank you for allowing and clarifying things. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime. But it's, you know. I mean, but I mean, I kind of like stand up the group in, in, in a rabbit trail. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, for me. We're okay with some of those. It's normally Scott that asks the questions, but I appreciate that. Because he's, he's, he's willing to put himself out there. And the reality is. If Scott has a question, there's probably at least one other person in the room that has the same exact question. They're just not willing to ask it. And so Scott's willing to take the heat and, and ask it. But I want everybody to feel that comfortable. You know, if you've got a question, uh, as long as I don't think that it's a way far off squirrel, I want us to talk through it because that's a learning experience. And you know, I want you to be a self-feeder of God's Word, so I want you to be able to have answers on that. But having said that, I might not always have an answer. Okay? And if I, if I say, you know, I'm not sure on that one. I need to do a little research. You know, please don't think less of me in that. Um, but I just don't know everything. Even though sometimes I think I do. That's a whole other sin issue. You know? <laughs> but you know how that is with me. I try, to, I try to confess it so that the Holy Spirit keeps working on me. That, you know, so. I have a question a little off topic. You mentioned a newsletter. Mm-hmm. 
you're not getting the Thursday? Okay. Are you getting the prayer list that goes out either Monday or Tuesday in email? Well, golly, do you will agree. Okay. So, jan.scott at bbcfnc.org. At BBC FNC Fayetteville, North Carolina. Dot org. I have a question. And send her both of your emails okay, and say it, it became aware that you guys are not getting the prayer list or the Thursday email uh, newsletter and you need to get put on that. Yeah. Anybody else not getting those? Oh, no. Okay. All right. And, and that's one of those. I know sometimes you get a lot of emails. Prioritize. The Thursday email is very important mm -hmm. because that's where we communicate a lot of things. A lot of things that people come up and go, hey, what is that? What's going on? What did that mean? And I was like, mm, they didn't read the newsletter. Yeah. Kind of obvious. I, I still tell them what it is, real nice and gentle on that one. I'm not empathetic. You know, I don't feel bad. You know, I'm just like, you know, that one there. Uh, but then also the prayer list. Yeah. You know, and, and just to help you with that, this is not a prayer list that everything gets, you know, on there and it's on there and it's on there. And so, you know, you're praying for Bob's cousin uh, that had surgery, but he had it back in June and it's still on the prayer list. No, the prayer list gets turned over every week. Right? And so the stuff that's in there for this week was stuff that was turned in on white cards on Sunday. Now, for some of you, that hurts your feelings because then you have to keep turning it in every week. But yet, by having that system, it keeps what's on the prayer list fresh so that you're not feeling like you know, you're praying for something that doesn't need prayer uh, on that. But if we're really family, we need to be praying for each other you know, on that. Okay. Somebody I, ju I was just going to ask you about what you just mentioned about the King James Bible mm -hmm. and it being the full Bible you, with the Apocrypha. You can't really say that. Now explain it a little more. <laughs> so in 1611, mm -hmm. um, King James paid money to have an English translation made that the Church of England could have and be its own. When the translators translated the Old Testament and the New Testament, they also put the Apocrypha in it. And so if you have a King James 1611 Bible, it's going to have the Old Testament, the Apocrypha, and the New Testament. And so that's where, if you are a King James only person, then you've got to explain how it is a perfect English translation, mm -hmm. but yet the Apocrypha is in it. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's reasons why it's in there, but I'm not trying to say it's a perfect translation. Right now. You know, it was because the Church of England technically is still the Catholic Church, and so that's why it had to be in there. Right. Okay. But if you're saying the King James is the perfect inspired English Word of God, mm -hmm. then the way they wrote it has to be it. Right. You know, okay. and so that's that's you know, so that's how that I do sense. that. Okay. All right, let me close up. Father, I thank you that we have just a great family here that wants to dig into your word. Father, help us tomorrow uh, to spend some time with you with your word. And you reveal the truth that is in it and help us to apply it in our quiet time with you. Jesus, name I pray. Amen. <coughs> Amen. Amen. Yes, my parents.